You know, I would have had a great introduction for this week's podcast, but I had like 30,000 emails from my boss in my <laughs> inbox this morning. So we'll just get started. That sounds uh, like an exaggeration. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. 30,000. 40,000. 718. So we'll just get started. This week's episode is a little bit different. It's a behind the scenes episode. So you're not going to be hearing any content from our oral history program, any interviews or anything like that. It's going to be the three of us uh, talking as well as our special guest who's going to be coming in a little bit later, telling you guys all about how this podcast came to be as well as the history of the oral history program in general and all the fun factoids that come along with it. Exciting. This will be fun. I'm ready. Roll theme song. One of the first topics we're going to get into today is all about the oral history program as a whole. So not so much the podcast, what you guys are hearing right now, but more of what inspired the creation of the podcast. And so Dan started back in... March of uh, 2000. Oh, was how, our very first interview. What grade were you in? In 2000. That's enough. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I was six. So for, is that first grade? Yeah, kindergarten, first grade, depending. <laughs> I was in, well, no, I was in middle school. Never mind. Take to make me feel just a little older, thank you very much. <laughs> Our interview um, collection now includes some of the uh, interviews I did in my radio days. So there are a few that actually go back to uh, 1984. Oh, before both of us were born. Yeah. So there. So there. Now I'm really old. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> we just generated a report right before we started recording today that gave us a total current count of how many interviews, separate interviews, Dan has conducted through his radio days that we have now as part of our collection, not his entire radio catalog, um, as well as his entire NAM oral history catalog, which at the date of recording, which is the 22nd of August, 2017, took me a minute. <laughs> Um, we are at 3,415. Nope, I'm wrong because that's predicting what he's going to get in the next three weeks. So we are actually at day of recording, August 22nd, 2017, 3,363 interviews. Mm. Wow. Wow. That's a lot of listening. I would say which one was your favorite, but that's not a really fair question. So you it's can't. impossible. Yeah. But I will say it has been such a blessing to be a part of this and sit toe-to-toe with some of the icons in music making and the music products industry over all these years. So I'm delighted to have the opportunity with you guys to share this content. So um, hard to pick a, a particular favorite, but I will say that nobody will listen to me complain if I list people like Les Paul and B.B. King and Bob Moog, Henry Steinway, uh, legends all, but also some of the behind the scene folks. Uh, one of my favorite interviews that really just uh, summarized the passion that this industry has is uh, Millie Swanson, who was 93 uh, at the time of her interview. She was a secretary for every president at the Wurlitzer Company in DeKalb, Illinois, since its uh, very beginning. 
uh, until her retirement. So it was really a blessing and uh, just a delight to have that opportunity. But it told me that it didn't need to be interviews with just heads of companies and legends and musicians that we all know by name, but the people that really worked it and were there for the history and for the change and for the development. And uh, people like Millie certainly represented that. So this collection has a lot of those folks too. Uh, the underdogs that maybe didn't get a lot of recognition, but certainly were there when history was being made. So uh, we're really proud of that factor. So one of the things that I think a lot of people who are maybe on the list or were looking at trying to set up an interview with or who are interested themselves and maybe are thinking about reaching out to us about securing some time with you, Dan, um, is one of the questions they, a lot of them have is what's the criteria to be an oral history candidate to sit down with you and be interviewed? Um, do you want to go over kind of the parameters of what qualifies someone? Well, we uh, this is sort of a moving target because we do make exceptions to those who um, can help us with something specific that we want to document. For example, if there is a, a music store or music company that uh, has been well known and we don't have a lot of information about, uh, we may go out of sequence with somebody who hasn't been uh, in the industry for 30 or 40 years, but we do try to uh, limit our collection, uh, at least right now, to those who have been involved with the music products industry for uh, a good duration of time. Uh, it also helps uh, those who have worked for different companies who can give us a perspective. Um, and of course, those who have innovated something like a product or a process. Um, so it's a little general, but since we've been doing it so long, we're really clear about those that fit and those that do not fit. Um, one of the um, areas that we're always looking to do, uh, of course, is, uh, as I say, every interview is a puzzle piece and putting it together uh, with other interviews allows us to show the bigger picture of what the industry is. But sometimes, um, just because we started in the year 2000 and not 1904, uh, we missed the opportunity to interview a lot of folks, obviously, uh, that were very inspirational for this industry. So as a result, any chance I have to interview somebody who knew a Leo Fender or uh, Mel Bay, uh, folks that had passed away before we had a chance to interview them, uh, we always take it, uh, those opportunities to fill in those puzzle pieces because uh, those stories are important. And even if they are secondhand stories, they still are, are represented in the collection, and that's important to us. And one of the things that I think uh, kind of explains the process pretty well is uh, what happens is people will contact Dan typically and give them suggestions. I think you should interview this person because they did this, they impacted that, they were contributing on this project. And then that really pools together the candidates. So it's a lot of by name suggestions. Right. I mean, you just Absolutely. get people shooting you emails, send you texts, calling you and letting you know. That's vital. Uh, I, I appreciate you bringing that up, Elizabeth, because that's really the success of the program is the fact that I'm not the only one that cares about this. You know, there are hundreds of supporters out there who have an idea. And my goal really has always been 
to somehow convey to everybody listening, uh, everybody in the industry, when you go out to dinner with somebody that you haven't seen for years and they're telling you all these great stories, get in your car and think about me. That's what I want. You know, send me a text. Well, when you're not driving and um, let me know, hey, this guy has all these great stories. Oh, this lady was there when this product was launched. You really ought to interview her. That's really why we have the collection that we have. The one person can't know all the segments, all the tribes within the music products industry. Um, but with the help of all of our friends, we've been able to identify those who are out there that should be documented. So that list, the wish list, grows because of uh, these ideas. And what helps um, promote someone to the top of the list is when several people uh, suggest that person. So it's really, really important that we get the word out there that we are interested in hearing your ideas. Yeah, so we have this document within the department um, that Dan refers to as the wish list, where it's a compilation of all of these names, and it's an extensive, it's a huge document. And I think sometimes some of our candidates get super excited at the prospect of being interviewed that they think once their name gets submitted, once we reach out to them and say, would you ever be interested? Where are you currently located? You know, what's your schedule look like? That they think we'll be out there next week. Um, and so we always try and stress that it's a really it's a one-man operation mike and i help out as much as we can but dan's the one on the road and there's only one of dan thank goodness and he's here today <laughs> and he's here today this will be the last day he's in with us for quite some time because he's on the road capturing interviews um and so i think a lot of people assume that dan you get a name and then you fly out to meet them but it doesn't quite work like that um it's more of a you get a collection of names you say it's time for me to go to New York you went to New York recently and then you plan a trip a week-long trip or something like that and then you see who in that region in that area can come and sit down with you has time for you so right just because you make it to the wish list doesn't mean it's going to be a day a week a month a year it could be quite some time before schedules work out because you're busy as a interviewer they're busy as an interviewee right and you got to coordinate so that's exactly right and some people have been on the wish list for a very long time willing to do the interview but with scheduling makes it difficult there are those folks who um, always come to the Anaheim NAM show for example but are booked solid so even though we get to see them once a year that isn't necessarily an opportunity while others come to the show and that's the golden opportunity to be interviewed so um, that then uh, allows us to take advantage of those opportunities. But you're right, traveling really is, um, is difficult because we don't go to a said state or city every Thursday or every uh, February. Um, it changes and it's completely based on uh, who's on the wish list and what our priorities are. Um, so again, I appreciate you bringing that up. It also uh, gives me an opportunity, if you don't mind, to um, talk just a second about those uh, supporters that we have out there. We have uh, been for several years giving an award. Uh, Joe Lamond, our CEO, presents it on Friday morning at the breakfast session in Anaheim every year at the NAM show uh, called the Oral History Service Award. And that is given to an individual who has really gone way above what we would expect someone to do to help us with this program. Uh, oftentimes, there are folks that 
not just open up their Rolodex and say, oh, here's a phone number of somebody, but really understand this program, understand what is needed, uh, ask for areas uh, of development that we want to pursue, and then go all out, oftentimes making their uh, original contact with that person um, and then introducing me to them uh, to kind of give it a little extra nudge. And I'm talking about people like George Groon. He was the first one uh, to get the award. Uh, Keith Mardak over at Hal Leonard, uh, Madeline Crouch, and Jim Funada, um, Dennis Houlihan. We've had just amazing help with these folks or from these folks. And um, that's really been a critical part of our success. Yeah, so with all that being said, if you're listening and you're, you think of someone that you haven't seen in our collection found on our website, that you think would be the perfect candidate, you can reach out to us at library at nam.org. And some of the key details we really look f- look for in trying to set all this up is, you know, obviously their first and last name. Their current location helps us as well uh, as a description about why, why do you think that they should be interviewed? Like kind of convince us to some degree, even if, you know, they are that Les Paul of their generation and we should know who they are. It just kind of helps motivate us. Um, as well as any contact information, if you feel comfortable sending that to us or making an introduction, copying on us an email with them or something like that, that just kind of expedites the process and helps us connect all the dots to get it moving forward. Absolutely. And another thing to quickly say is, you know, in the early days, uh, in the year 2000 and for probably five or six years after that, we really felt like we were trying to play catch up. And there was a big focus on elderly folks so that we could catch those uh, stories and capture them before it was too late. And um, it's really been kind of refreshing since about 2007, where we have been uh, focusing also on just documenting the history of the industry as it's even happening now. So there's a lot of younger folks that we're interviewing, folks that have been in the industry for 30 years, but are currently still working and have a long career to go. Um, So it's not just about the old folks anymore, but whenever possible, of course, that's our highest priority. It continues to be a focus because it's really um, important for us to get that story while we can. So kind of shifting gears a little bit, uh, still staying on the topic of our original content, which is the oral history program, those on-camera video interviews, we're going to kind of switch over to hearing a little bit more from Mike, who does a lot of the technical stuff. Um, He's our tech guru wizard. That's me. Master of podcast mixing and other things. Um, (laughs) I like that. That's really good. Can I be my title? I had to give you a shout out because you remembered to plug everything in today. Yes. So, you know. (laughs) A little scratching there, you know. (laughs) Yeah. Nice. Uh, um, So, when it comes time to film on camera, these oral history interviews, again, not podcast, original content, uh, let's go through some of the equipment. Yes. So, Documenting the music products industry, um, we're of course going to be a little bit of uh, gear oriented just because it's the music products industry. Um, And for these interviews, we like them to be very high quality, both the video and the audio, so that they can be preserved forever, I would imagine the hope is. So for a camera, we use a Canon EOS C100, which is a really nice camera, especially for interviews. for a lens on there, we have a 24 to 105 millimeter. The model number is EW83H, in case anyone's wondering. Um, we usually try to get a pretty tight shot. Um, 
of the interviewee. Um, we don't move the camera around at all, so movement's not an issue. Uh, we use uh, external monitors, uh, the Atomos Shogun, as well as the Atomos Ninja Flame. Um, and personally, I like those a lot just because it allows you to see what the finished product's going to look like without having to go through uh, the filming and editing process just to see that you messed up your shot. So <laughs> those help a lot. Which never happens. No. Never. Well, not anymore because we have the monitors. So. Right. Problem <laughs> well, solved. It helps with coloring. It helps yeah, with the exactly. lighting. It's, yeah, because yeah, you can fantastic. do, you can, yeah, you can see all your exposure levels. Um, it helps with sound because um, the the metering on the camera, the the little monitor on cameras, you can barely see. So it's good to see the meters on the the Atomos monitors. Right. As well. Plus, the monitor helps for people who occasionally help out. Dan, myself being one of them, behind the camera. Yes. Um, as well as other volunteers to who don't have that technical experience to be very quickly trained, uh, especially on those monitors. It's just so simple. Right. It's crazy. Yeah. Everything's touch screen nowadays, and it's all very um, basic controls that yeah. you don't need to really know too much about filming to be able to operate these. So, And there's been a lot of thought process in, in how we create that look, uh, you know, not focusing too much on the background, um, not having too far a shot. It's almost kind of stealing a little concept from um, 60 Minutes, which I used to watch a lot when I was a kid. Um, Ed Bradley did these wonderful interviews with people like uh, Aretha Franklin that I was just enthralled with. And one of the thoughts that I gleaned from that was listening to that interview that he did, I was sort of like a fly on the wall. I was sort of there, even though I wasn't there. And that's what we're trying to create as well, is there, we're not asking them to look right in the camera. You know, that's sort of too invasive, but just a little bit off camera so that it's inviting and makes you kind of think that you're there and uh, that's that's kind of cool to me because uh, that's what we want it to be and as a result of that uh, we have created sort of our uh, our own little uh, way of doing things our workflow and our own presentation and um, and I think that's sort of criti uh, quintessential to the results that we're able to get is that also allows the interviewee to be somewhat more relaxed and sort of forget about the fact that they're being videotaped while we're uh, talking to them. Yeah, definitely. Can we say videotaped? Videotaped, even though we're not using yeah. tape anymore. Yeah. Right. That's we haven't used tape since... Oh, when did you start working here and convince mm. him? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Nice. Anyway, moving forward, um, for lights, we use Lowell lights. Um, we have a key light, hair light, and a backlight. And we use that three light setup. It, it, it uh, creates a really nice shot where um, we put the background out of focus um, and the backlight ad adds a little bit of artistic flair, I guess you could say, to the, to the background of the shot. The key light helps tremendously with um, just lighting the, the interviewee up. And um, the hair light really defines like the shoulder and, and the back of the head so it doesn't look like just a light blob sitting on a chair. <laughs> uh, for the tripod, we use a, a Manfrotto tripod. And I have the model's numbers here in case anyone's wondering. Um, for the legs, it is the MVT502AM. And the head is a MVH500A. 
in case you were wondering. And those are fantastic. I mean, I really yeah. highly recommend those. We, we, of course, had experimented with all kinds of tripods before this one, and I'm just in love with this setup. I mean, the, it flows so nicely. It folds down. It's lightweight and very durable. I mean, I, I'm not necessarily very gentle with the equipment, and the fact that they've held up as long as they have is kind of a miracle. Yeah, and, <laughs> and talking about the tripod, um, occasionally we'll have interviewees that talk with their hands or move around a lot, which is totally fl- totally fine. We like them to be comfortable and and do whatever they need to do. Um, but with the Manfrotto tripod, the, the head we have on it is so fluid that you can adjust a shot slightly without really even noticing. I know I've used some tripods where you'll go to like loosen it so you can uh, move it left or right, and just loosening it shakes the whole tripod and the shot gets out of focus and you have to redo everything. So yeah, I, I recommend those tripods too. They're also easy to balance more weight. So when we started adding the additional monitors, we needed to adjust and balance the weight of the camera on the tripod and it worked just fine. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, All of our other stands, too, for lights are all Manfrotto stands. Um, We use the lightweight uh, ones um, because they're just so easy to travel with, um, which is something we didn't really bring up. But Dan does travel with all of this gear, and it can get pretty heavy. Um, So we've condensed it all down to one fairly large suitcase full of lights and stands and then just a camera bag that will fit into uh, the overhead of of any plane. So keeping everything as light as possible is is crucial for this setup. Well, our our breakdown really needs to be, uh, the weight has to be less than 70 pounds for most airlines. Uh, Of course, less than 50 would be ideal because there is no additional overweight charge, but we can't do that. We've tried and tried and tried. We just need to go with a certain amount. And sometimes we use it all, and sometimes we don't, but having those options, like Michael saying about the three light setup, uh, sometimes it's more of a, a shoot and run kind of thing where we're in somebody's home, we don't have a whole lot of time, maybe the key light is all we're able to do. So we don't necessarily use all three, but having those options when they're uh, critical is very important. So the, the key really has been to get that packaging down to uh, the weight of 70 or less. Yeah, so just a few more things that we use um, for mics. Kind of the most important part of the interview besides the camera, um, because if the audio is no good, then there's pretty much no interview. Um, And we also like to have everybody comfortable. Um, Holding a handheld mic can kind of be annoying sometimes, and wired mics can get in the way. So we use wireless lavalier mics. We use the Sennheiser EW100G3s, and we've just found that they're really good quality. They're they're durable. They can get beat up a little bit. Um, Super easy to clip on and not worry about. And um, yeah, battery life's pretty decent on them as far as wireless uh, labs go. And um, no complaints from me for those. And for headphones, uh, just to monitor everything, I use Sony MDR V6 monitor headphones. And once the shot is all done, the interview takes place, um, it's all edited down in Final Cut Pro 10. How are we saving those? Saving the interview. 
Oh, good question. So um, we record onto two formats. Uh, first, it just gets recorded onto SD cards right through the camera. Um, we use Lexar SD cards. I forget. I think we use the 64 gig ones. Um, I mean, we just use as, as big as they go. I think they go way bigger than that, but I'm comfortable with just 64. And then we also record onto the monitors, um, just onto either a hard drive or a solid state drive. Um, I think we're using the Samsung solid state drives right now. And um, that we use as a backup. So once everything's recorded, if I go to put the SD card in the computer and there's nothing, which I don't think that's happened yet, and I hope it never does, we always have the hard drive backup. Um, which is great. It's just peace of mind and we don't have to worry about anything. And once everything's imported onto my computer, um, the hard drives get erased and reused and the SD cards go into, they get archived and collected forever pretty much. So someone out there might say, well, why are you doing an automatic backup? It seems a little overkill. And the answer to that question is Arthur Griggs, who was... Uh, <laughs> oh, <laughs> Arthur Griggs. Oh, that explains uh -huh. everything. Oh, okay. That's the no answer. explanation needed. <laughs> Somebody please ask me. Who, why is the answer to that question, <laughs> Arthur Griggs, Dan? Who, what, where, <laughs> when, question. and why? <laughs> so Arthur Griggs lived in Chicago. He was about 90 years old when I first interviewed him. And I delightfully came home... Um, with the, uh, the, back then it was a mini uh, DV tape of the interview. I left it in my car while I played in the park with my kids before returning to the office and somebody broke into my car and took it. And uh, we never recovered it and I had no backup. So back on the phone to Arthur, do you mind doing another interview? He said, sure, I don't mind at all. So we went and scheduled another interview. This time I was able to have a layover on my way to Washington, D.C. from San Diego to Chicago. Had four hours. I figured that was plenty of time. Went to um, land uh, looking for my equipment, and the equipment went right on to Washington. Uh, they made a mistake, and I sat there and had to call Arthur and say, well, let's do a third time. So about five months later, I was able to get out to Chicago again. I um, got to his house, and would you believe the tripod disintegrated right in front of me. I put every part of it together as much as I could, and it was ridiculous how it just fell apart. This is before the Manfrotto. So luckily, Arthur, during World War II, had taken photographs for the U.S. Army and said, I might have a tripod that could help. And he took me to this little closet in his house that had about 5,000 tripods. <laughs> it, was, it was like the angels were singing or something. And uh, so we were able to find one. And uh, we finally taped the, the interview at that time, uh, the second interview that took three tries. And I thought to myself, you know what? I'm keeping this in my pocket until I get all the way to the office and we can digitize it and download it. So since that time, I have developed a bit of a twitch um, because we not, we're not always lucky enough to be able to go back that many times to the same location over a period. I think it still took over a year uh, to finally get it done. But that is the answer of why uh, I have a psychosis about this. See, I never knew that. No, I didn't. I and it's, and it's funny because nowadays when we travel too, 
Um, whenever we pack up, Dan will always hand me the case of SD cards and say, I'll take the hard drives, you take the SD cards I am in case anything you happens. I am handing the SD cards. And it's always like, what what, what would happen that we would get split up? And, and it's like, <laughs> I guess that's the reason. So now we know. That's my Twitch. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Arthur. Oh, Arthur. Um, so that's you covered all the equipment right yes that's good? all i use okay that's great. so one of the questions it seems like dan gets asked a lot by potential interviewees um after he's kind of coordinated a time and everybody's on board and, and the appointment's coming up is well, what are you going to ask me everybody wants to know what are you going to ask me which i think is kind of a double-edged sword because people want to be prepared because if you're going to delve deep into some wanting them to recall names and dates and facts they want to be able to prepare those things so that way they don't you know hem and haw on camera and not be able to recall that information but you don't want to prepare them because then it comes rehearsed and scripted and robotic and that's no fun for anyone right so there has to be a balance somewhere in between there needs to be a comfort level but not too much that they rely on it as a crutch and i have two or three interviews in our collection for which the uh the person insisted on reading their answers and it's good information and i'm really glad that we've documented those stories but it's uh, as elizabeth says maybe not as in um exciting to to the uh, the viewer to sit and listen to and watch so we really want it to be a comfortable and exciting experience because that way we can both be uh, enjoying the opportunity of listening to what they have to say. So as a result of that, I actually do an awful lot of research ahead of time, but I don't make any notes that I bring with me. Very rarely do I do that. Um, and the reason for that is comfort level. If I'm just there to have a conversation and look you in the eye and not my notes, then you're going to look me in the eye and we're just going to have a, uh, uh, an exchange of information as opposed to uh, grueling down this and that. And you might ask, why don't you prepare the notes? Where did that come from? Is it Arthur again? Arthur Gregg. Oh. Oh. This time it's Lena Horn. Well, we, I, oh, yeah, we, uh, okay. <laughs> so when I was a kid, <laughs> you guys are awesome. We're so excited. Can't you tell? What? Please <laughs> tell me you know you've heard the name Lena Horn. I've heard the name okay, Jim good. Horn. Oh my lord. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Lena Horn was a extremely popular uh, actress back in the. Th- 1940s. Uh, she was also a singer who had a string of big hits and did a big cabaret show in her later years. Um, well known. Um, you'll have to look up uh, Cabin in the Sky or Stormy Weather. She did some great movie uh, musical. She was in Carmen. Um, did wonderful stuff. Anyway, I got to interview her when I was a kid. I was like 15 or 16 years old. It was for a radio program and I had made great notes. I had done all kinds of research. I knew exactly what I wanted to ask her and I jotted the ball down and I started with uh, asking her about her latest project because that's the main reason that most artists uh, agree to do an interview with uh, a 16 year old kid is that we're going to plug her new CD uh, back then on uh, the radio. So we started with that and one of the songs on the album uh, was written by Billy Strayhorn who 
uh, was a fantastic songwriter. He did take the A train and many, many other wonderful songs with Duke Ellington back in the uh, 50s and 60s. And uh, she was a personal friend of his. Uh, Billy died in the 60s and I never had a chance to interview him or know him. So I was hoping to talk to her a little bit about that. But my questions about Billy Strayhorn were on the second page and she brought him up on the first page uh, when she was talking about this new CD. And in listening to that tape, she's talking about one particular song, um, uh, A Flower is a Lovesome Thing, which he wrote. And she said it was a beautiful poem. And I just remember listening to the quality of her voice and the way she explained what that song was and what it meant to her and where Billy's soul was as a human being and how beautiful his soul was. And I quickly moved on from there because that's not when we're going to talk about Billy Strayhorn. And later when I brought up Billy Strayhorn, it wasn't the same. Of course, she answered the questions, but her heart wasn't in it like it was that first time. And I really learned a valuable lesson there that you have to go with the flow. You have to listen to where the folks are. And if we don't quite cover what I was hoping to cover now, well, I'll bring it back and do it later. But listening to where the uh, the subject goes and where that passion is and um, how that story is unfolding is much more important than a few little details so that's really why we don't take notes and why i think it's really important to have a comfortable uh, casual conversation so to answer your question which i haven't yet done um, we usually start with a little background. I want to let it be very clear that we are interested in the whole story and we want to try to do it somewhat in chronological order so we don't miss anything. Oftentimes, without this direction, at the very end, someone might say, oh yeah, and I also, uh, you know, played bagpipes in, you know, Benny Goodman's band or whatever. Wait, what? Benny Goodman had bagpipes? Um, that kind of thing <laughs> happens if we go out of sequence and we don't necessarily have the chance to cover everything in the detail that we would like. So um, chronological is important, but also letting them know that we're interested in their where they came from. Did their parents have music? Did they play? Did they have music in their home when they were kids? I know you guys love to hear that story because that's the first one I ask and that sort of sets the tone, I believe. And because it is, that's sort of my signature question. Uh, but from there, we want to cover a little bit about musical experiences that you had as a kid, where your passion came from, uh, how it developed, if you had instructions, teachers, either in the uh, public school system or maybe at the local music store, uh, how was that experience? What instruments did you gravitate to? Uh, what did you enjoy? Uh, music stores that you had as a kid, that's always great. Un unfortunately, there's a lot of music stores that aren't around anymore. And so this is our chance to document them. Maybe if it, even if it's just a mention, to me, that's important. Um, Gelb Music in Redwood City was the first place I had uh, music lessons, for example. And so just a, a mention of that, I think, is an important thing. But it also talks a little bit about um, that era, where that person grew up, uh, those kind of experiences. And then we go into education and how they got into the music industry, what jobs they had, what mentors they had, uh, changes that they've seen, what products they've been involved with, um, those kind of things. Yeah, so now if you're listening to this and you're, you know, you have an appointment with Dan coming up, you feel free to 
email them if you that makes you feel comfortable and try and discuss and hash out what's going to go on but in reality it's a conversation it's just we want your story and so whatever path that interview takes as it's happening is totally fine it's we're not seeking one question and one answer it's it's the complete it's the complete person the complete history so well said yeah um so moving on a lot of the other question we get typically towards the end of an interview process is well, what are you going to do with it? <laughs> Which is just, Nothing. Just yeah, kind of no, hang on done. to it. We're done. Um, oh, we were supposed to be recording the entire time? Um, and so it, there's really two separate uses currently for the content that we capture. Um, one is something we affectionately call a web clip, and we'll have Mike tell us that. Yeah, so a web clip, I don't even know if that's a real word, but it that's is what now. we call it. Yep. A web clip is a short, usually two to five minute, ish uh, video uh, edited down from the full length interview. Um, full interviews with Dan can range anywhere from a half an hour to an hour plus up to several four. days. So four. yeah, four <laughs> hours. So um, it's, it's very difficult and almost impossible to post full interviews of everyone we get. Um, occasionally we will post a full interview if it's something um, very interesting or um, High demand requests. Yeah, and like things Les like Paul, I know, has his full interview up there and people along that nature. Um, so a web clip is a great way to see um, who we interviewed, what their main story is. It's usually just a snippet of um, maybe either a cool story or if they're giving some great history. We try not to make it a highlight reel just because that doesn't really do anything for the interview it, it it's really hard to condense um everything that someone says into just two or five minutes so i like to find a cool story to get you interested in the collection and um besides the web clip um if if you're watching a web clip and you're really into it um we link all of the web clips through these tags um keyword tags such as uh guitars or band and orchestra or pro sound and lighting and if you click on the tag at the bottom of the video it'll take you to a almost like a playlist of all other web clips with the same tag so if you're watching um, a web clip of some luthier and you think it's really cool and you scroll down to the bottom and you click the luthier tag you're going to get this list of all of the luthiers that we've interviewed and the the tag system really makes um, the website fun in my opinion because you can just get lost there you find <laughs> one person that interests you and then you click on some tags and you're like oh they interviewed him they interviewed her they interviewed all these people and then before you know it it's been five hours and you're still on the website so I just web clips are, are amazing in my opinion so the theory behind the tag was really to help navigate and hopefully we'll be able to add that to a search function on our website at some point um, so it was really based on the idea of function. As a result, if we have five or six people talking about the same subject, then we'll create a keyword tag for that. So there are really uh, hundreds of tags uh, down to company names. Uh, we have one for Wurlitzer, for example, or Yamaha. We also have um, some specific for... Um, products, uh, the, the Hammond B3, for example, uh, but then also um, some social-related uh, items like uh, the Civil Rights Movement or World War II, 
um, just because there are so many interviews with interesting topics that go into some of the, uh, the practical parts of people's lives. So we try to include those as well. We also have isolated so we're able to uh, find, for example, um, there's a keyword tag for many of the larger countries that we have interviewed several people from. So there is one for our, uh, the, uh, the Japanese music industry, the German music industry, for example. Uh, we also have a tag for um, women in the music industry to allow us to focus on those topics as well. So besides the web clips, uh, we also utilize the content for podcasts. And that doesn't really need much explanation, right? Because you're listening to a podcast. That's what we're doing right now. Yeah. So <laughs> if you're listening to this, you're on the right track to hear a lot of our <laughs> content. Um, but you'll find that, as we mentioned in a lot of our previous podcasts, and then we'll continue to do down the line, when we pull a clip, um, it, it's not necessarily the same content that you're going to see on the web clip on our website. So you might be getting a different version of a story from the same person, um, it's just, again, since we don't post the entire interview, you're not going to, you know, see both in both places. So. Which is why it's great to listen to the podcast. Which is why you should listen to the podcast. And watch the web clips. Yeah. Right. Well, the idea <laughs> of the web clip really started from the idea that we had a full list of everybody that we interviewed on the website. And people were kept asking us about that. But it didn't really say much. It didn't really connect with people because... Sorry, oh, I thought I was, you were about no, to I was, oh, Sorry, it was the most gigantic <laughs> yawn okay, I've ever. <laughs> so this list um, at one point just had name and the title, um, but adding a segment was really important because it allows us to, as Michael said, uh, learn even more you know, about that person. You can better understand the era in which they worked, uh, a little bit of their background just by listening uh, to them. So... That was really important, but these web clips are really just based on the individual. So having now a depth of over um, 3,400 interviews is um, a, lot, a lot of material out there, and we haven't really had any way of showcasing the depth of the collection. In other words, seven people talking about the same topic would be very interesting, and that's where the podcast came in. And now we're able to take something like our first two episodes were about Sun Records. We were able to take those interviews of folks that mentioned that uh, recording company in Memphis and take and make a podcast from it. And that's really exciting to us. We really love that. We also have the opportunity with these podcasts to play the full interview and add perspective on that particular person like Les Paul. So um, I'm really excited about the podcast as a vehicle of showcasing uh, these interviews. Which is a perfect transition to our final topic for discussion today, and that's the behind the scenes of the podcast. Um, so would now be the perfect time to introduce our special guest? Yes. Oh my gosh, everybody's super excited. <laughs> I know I am. <laughs> so here is the Director of Professional Development from at NAM, Zach Phillips. We are very excited. We have our first live guest in the room. It's not really a studio, I guess. In the room, in our studio, our very high tech studio filled with flat screens and really comfy couches. It's yeah, no, we're totally lying. It's a table and some wheelie desk chairs. Um, <laughs> but we have our very own Zach Phillips, director of professional development. Yay! <laughs> and Welcome, he, Zach. Yeah, and he's going to talk about thank you the theme song, the awesome theme song you guys hear every two weeks. 
I liked that intro. You have low standards. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we do. <laughs> <laughs> Look who I work with. No, I'm kidding, guys. I'm kidding. Um, no, this is cool because a great part of the podcast, of course, is that theme song. And Zach, we'd love to have you talk a little bit about the idea and uh, how it came about. Okay. Um, so... You know, when the podcast was starting to come together, I think it was you, uh, Shalise Zalezi, our director of PR and social media, and me, um, just kicking around some ideas. And you'd said, well, I like the idea of a podcast, but I'll only do it, Zach, if you write the theme song. And I thought, oh, that's really funny, Dan. That, that's hilarious. <laughs> so then the podcast started to come to fruition a few weeks later, and you said, I'm waiting on that theme song. And I thought, oh, I've got to make something happen now. Okay. Um, he was serious? Yeah. I, 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 I did think you were kidding. I, I really did. Um, went home. I had about, um, let's say, maybe a half dozen instrumental passages, more than riffs, uh, not quite songs um, that had just been sitting around, some as far back as 2001 and 2002 that didn't have a home. Um, played with a bunch of them, had one in particular that my wife liked a lot, and we both thought, this sounds like a good podcast theme song, but it wasn't quite right. It was hard. It, it actually, I, I pictured it on guitar. You really couldn't play it on guitar. It had a tricky counter melody. Uh, it had a, um, a, a very um, difficult, uh, uh, it just the riff was unplayable, wasn't good on piano. Um, you know, so sat on it for about a week. I think, Dan, you'd emailed me again and said, looking forward to the theme song. So I thought, okay, I've got, I really have to make some magic happen here. It was the night of the Graham Nash concert here at the Museum of Making Music, actually. We were all coming to that concert. I was volunteering. I think all of you were doing the interview with Graham. Uh, I had about six or seven minutes to spare before I had to leave and picked up a guitar and open G tuning, started strumming that riff. Uh, threw in an F, which created a nice tension and angularity in the progression, and got on GarageBand right away. I think the slide guitar part became the melody, and that was that. You know, I, I'm, a, I, I'm a podcast connoisseur. I listen to a lot of podcasts, and I, 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 the theme song's a big piece of it, so I thought, you know, it, in the back of my head, nagging at me was the idea of, okay, you know, this, this is some pressure here because... Um, if, if I don't deliver here, Dan's never going to speak to me again. <laughs> I'm glad that was motivation. It, it was motivation. But, you know, the, the other thing was I kept thinking about the music history project and the concept of the podcast. I wanted something that was, you know, I, th I thought it made sense to do something that was neo-traditional, a little folky, a little bluesy, a little country, a uh, little stones and Allman Brothers thrown in. Um, but it had to be driving. It had to really start the podcast, you know, um, creates it had to create some momentum for the podcast so that was the idea behind it. it was something that was a little bit of a throwback but um it was also rock music it was it was it was folk and you know guitar driven the guitar has been such a big part of music products industry's history over the past 70 years okay so let's hear the theme song and then we'll come back and ask zach what instruments he was playing Right, Zach, pop quiz. Name all those instruments. Um, wow. 
<laughs> Elizabeth, you got you got you got to throw me an easy question. This is a tough one. Nope, that's my job. <laughs> is the hard question. <laughs> this is this is really tough. Uh, two acoustic guitars, tambourine, and slide guitar. Do you remember off the top of your head which any models or manufacturers or my uh, my wife years ago at a guitar show bought this Larave. I don't know what the model it is. It, what the model is? It has this beautiful eagle inlay on it. Um, it's my favorite guitar I've ever played. She never uses it. So I detuned it to G, uh, brought it to the studio with me. And both of it's, it's just that riff is the same guitar part, um, doubled. There's that opening bent, um, pull off that I do. That's only one guitar, but it's that Larave. It's a beautiful instrument. I think I did the slide on that as well. I can't remember if I did it on that guitar or a Dobro. <clears throat> Just know that that's a fantastic answer to me because I have no idea what you just said because I don't play an instrument. So, <laughs> what studio was it? Oh, good question. Um, went up on a Saturday to a studio owned by a fantastic local engineer producer. It's actually more of a producer and arranger. Talented guy by the name of Greg Montante. He's actually working my, with my wife on an album project as well. Um, just has a great little project studio in his home. Incredibly talented. And, you know, we banged this out in a couple takes. Of course, it still took. I think we, I, we booked a four-hour session. And we used the whole thing because once you get something right, you have to keep tweaking it and overthinking it. <laughs> <laughs> so let's hear the, uh, the other version. Sure. Which one do we like better? <clears throat> I think we should ask Zach that question. Oh, yeah. Electric. <laughs> uh, that, that one's personal to me for a couple of reasons. Um, well, first off, I just have to note the slide guitar part um, only took me about 140 takes. So <laughs> just, uh, still, still less than it would have taken me. So <laughs> 140 takes, probably a little Pro Tools uh, magic. Um no, I, I love that because I said to um, Greg Montante, the pro the producer and arranger, um, in this case, more, more of a producer and engineer role, he, you know, I said I wanted the rhythm guitar. I go, make me sound, I had a Strat with me, not a Telecaster, a Fender Strat, not a, a Fender Tele, but I said, I want to sound like Keith Richards. So he, you know, put me through his tweed Fender amp, stuck it in the closet. I can't remember what kind of, he, he maybe ran me through a an overdrive pedal and, you know, he made me sound like Keith Richards, you know, uh, <laughs> Sticky Fingers era, so that made me very happy. Sounds great. I really yeah. like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, you know, it was interesting. I, I I was hesitant to tell everybody this because I, I wanted to say, you know, we were in the studio with a fantastic drummer. Um, it is a drum library, actually. Again, we spent the better part of about two hours finding the right snare drum sound. Um, but this is a, a little factoid that I find kind of fun. Um, in the snare libraries, you can pick which drummer you want. And I said, I want this thing. I want to. I want the guitar to sound like Keith Richards. I want the drums to be driving. And we ended up with Simon Phillips's drum part. <laughs> so I'm playing. I'm playing guitar with Simon Phillips. Yeah. <laughs> Have we come up with a uh, title of this song? It's just called the Music History Project. <laughs> nice. <Both> yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Oh my gosh. Is there anything anybody anything else anybody guys has? 
you know, you just wanna... so much of this, this. I think this riff was actually a variation on something I'd, I'd had. I threw in that F in the chord to give it that angularity and, and that tension. But, um, you know, so often, you know, with, with all of these possible, with all of these um, ideas that, that I'd kind of come up with for the theme song, um, I was really looking for, for great, you know, ideas that would work that just didn't work with lyrics. So, you know, these were all um, orphans that were just sitting around and, I'm just very grateful that you all asked me to do this. Well, thank you. We're very grateful that uh, you wrote our theme song. It's pretty awesome. And um, you were also very inspirational in the beginning of this, uh, the concept of this podcast. So I thought while we had you here as our special guest, if you could give us a few words on your take of the importance of this particular podcast. And its relation to the program, too. Well, it's a great question. Um, I think that the NAM oral history team is sitting on a veritable gold mine of interviews and content. I don't, you know, I, Dan, I think you said this kind of collection doesn't exist anywhere in the world. And again, I'm a podcast connoisseur. So the idea of turning that content um, into podcast material, the idea of curating it for podcasts and downloadable audio to me is just, um, it's 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 an incredible opportunity for anybody with a smartphone um you know or a commute so <laughs> kudos to everyone here it's just a fa- I, I love what what you guys have done with it so far it's 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 brilliant <laughs> we're speechless thank you thank you no it's great to have your support thank you so much for the uh, theme song and for being our very first special guest Thank you for having me. Woo, Zach! <laughs> so that was Zach who did our theme song. We appreciate him coming in. Uh, next, we're going to have Mike rattle off the equipment that's used specifically for our podcast recording. Yes. So everything we use for podcasts is completely different from what we use for uh, filming the interviews. Just it, it's a different way of doing things. It's a totally different segment of what we do. So for microphones... Um, we're using Rode shock-mounted NT1A large diaphragm condenser microphones. Try saying that five times fast. I don't, I don't fast. know what you said in the first place. So. <laughs> um, oh, they're fantastic for this yes, purpose. Yes, they are. They are really nice. Um, they have great quality, um, a nice full sound. <laughs> they're and comfortable, too. Yes, they're yeah. They're comfortable to speak in. Yep, and uh, they've got a pop filters in front of them so that you can't hear all of my P's when I say you kind of can, but <laughs> not the bad kind. Um, for software, um, we use Audacity to record uh, the initial podcast. So Audacity is running right now. Um, but for post-production, I use Logic just because I'm more comfortable in, in that uh, audio workstation. For cables, um, we use Rode mic cables as well as um, some Hosa cables just for uh, random connections that we need. Uh, headphones, we have Audio-Technica ATH-M40Xs, uh, just some studio monitor headphones, great quality. They're super comfortable, too. Your yeah. ears don't hurt when you're wearing them all, yeah, all that's, the time. Yeah, that's the big thing about these headphones is sometimes we're sitting here recording this podcast for upwards of four hours, so it's nice to have a pair of headphones that doesn't, like, burn the outer ear. Yeah. Let's see, what else do we use? Uh, for an audio interface, we have a Tascam US 4x4 4-channel four four USB audio interface. 
um, which gets the job done. Uh, most of the time we only have three inputs, just our three microphones. Um, but occasionally if we need that fourth input, we have it. So just kind of nice to have. For a headphone amp, we use an AKG HP4E, which is a four-channel headphone amp. Again, we only need three channels, but it's nice to have the fourth channel there just in case. And for mic stands, we use on-stage desktop mic stands. And I think that's it. I'm looking around and I don't see anything else, so I think <laughs> yeah, we're good. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and so the other question we find a lot of people mostly in-house come up to and ask us is how do we decide what we're going to record and we've generated a pretty extensive list so far between the three of us of topics episode topics and people within those topics that we want to cover uh, but it really comes down to you guys to the listeners to our peers at work to our friends and family of what do you want to hear I mean if we have the interview content if 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 one of these 3,363 interviews is something we can make a podcast of, we're going to do it. So that's the perfect time to say, hey, I, I would love to hear you guys talking about the history of XYZ. Email us. Send us an email at library at nam.org. Give us, a, give us a synopsis of what you'd like to hear in the episode. We'll see if we have the content. If we do, it we'll put it on the list. It'll get made one day, eventually, hopefully. If we haven't interviewed them, it's a great start to say, okay, who do we need to collect that story? Who do we need to go visit to get the real picture of this concept or topic? Well said, absolutely. And then uh, editing process. That's the last thing, right? Yes, oh, yeah, who? that is the last step in this crazy world of podcasting yeah and i will say that um we have the best well thank you i assume you were talking about yeah. me <laughs> i'm just gonna take all that credit <laughs> well i didn't look at you <laughs> you gave me a head nod so you really just just say. this one time you're never gonna say it again i, I might mean. <laughs> i might say it again yeah so the editing process is sometimes simpler than for for some episodes um <laughs> if i can remember the name yeah, of the podcast exactly. i don't giggle too much yeah I mean. right i mean we're uh, not speaking for myself but speaking for dan and elizabeth they're very very well spoken so it's easy to edit them i mess up sometimes but i can edit that out that's no problem <laughs> i noticed that you're a lot cleaner than we are yeah right <laughs> so basically what happens is um as we're recording this uh all of the clips from the interviews are already edited and we just play them and listen to them in real time when you're listening to them uh, and at the end of the podcast i go into logic and splice it all together make sure our levels are nice and loud add any eq or compression that we need and for episodes like the Sun Records one or the DJs one, uh, it can get kind of tricky because we do talk about uh, the same people multiple times. They have stories that are told from different angles and it can get tricky, but I have a system down that, that's, that works for me. Um, I'm very comfortable in logic, so no worries there. And for episodes like Les Paul or Graham Nash, which, even which, easier which has already happened yeah. um are even easier yeah it's it's kind of just a let it ride and i splice in our commentary so yeah and then once uh mike finishes all that editing and he's good to go i write up a short little description that'll go on itunes and soundcloud uh just a short little blurb to give you guys a glimpse into what we're going to be talking about and then it gets posted and i was shocked at how easy it is in reality to get your stuff up on itunes and soundcloud yeah. So if you're out there and you want to, you think you want to do a podcast, like do it. Not not the same topic. 
no, no not, competition, not please. Um, but but I agree. Yeah, at first it was a little daunting going up against iTunes. You think that Apple's this big mega giant that's impossible to get on their platform, but we submitted the podcast for review. It said that it would take up to 14 days to review, and I think within the hour we were live yeah, on. Just comply with the their standards, store. which aren't crazy, and yeah. you're good to go. So don't be afraid to go out and do it because it's really not that challenging well at least my end of it's not that <laughs> challenging i don't know about mike but <laughs> i enjoy it so it's fun i didn't want to uh interrupt your flow there because i think it's important but there is one thing i wanted to back up and ask you about michael and that is the levels we have different interviews that were taped under different circumstances and different environments under in, with different uh, pieces of equipment do you find that you have to um manipulate the levels a lot when going from one interview to another and then splicing us in? Yes. So I always do a general mix of everything. So I edit down us talking and put in all of the clips and just kind of do a general mix to get all the levels around the same uh, level, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, because, yes, uh, since all of these recordings have been over the past 20 years at different times some of them are from way back 1984 94 early 2000s and some of them are very current um such as this year even so the audio quality is all over the place um but once i get that general mix and i export it all i can master the track and get everything sounding exactly the same which is not that hard it can be challenging um, because there are some interviews from uh, way back that weren't thinking of podcasts because I don't think podcasts were a thing in the (laughs) 80s (laughs) so it's 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 tricky but um, so far no problems yeah (laughs) Yeah. well once again you do an excellent job and you make us sound good and I appreciate that yeah so I think that pretty much wraps it up for this week's episode thanks for hearing kind of the behind the scenes story and bearing with us as we have a lack of interview content, but we'll be back to our normal program in two weeks. Uh, if you have any ideas for podcasts or history, oral history interview candidates, be sure to send them to us at library at nam.org. Also, we would love a positive review and feedback on iTunes. That would help us out greatly. And once again, huge shout out to Zach Phillips for coming in and sitting with us and creating that theme song for us. It really helped us out. Mm-hmm.